0: morning. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Acts uh, this morning, chapter 17. So if you grab a Bible and turn there, it'd be great. Uh, while you're doing that, just show you a picture of some of your friends, uh, some uh, members of Fellowship Raleigh that are currently overseas on the Central Asia trip. It's our second team that we've brought over there. Last Sunday, I mentioned the opportunity to, to you know kick in some support Uh, For that trip, and you did, and so thank you uh, for being part of that. But you know, we often say that on the other side of giving are changed lives, and so just look at this team. And you know, even this picture I know that on the right side of that picture is the continent of Asia, and on the left side of that picture is the continent of Europe as they sit there on the Bosphorus. And I know that this week is gonna be life changing for those four people, Um, but not just for them, but for those they encounter who almost everyone they meet this week will have never met a Christian from Raleigh, North Carolina, okay? And many of them will have never met a Christian, um, refugees coming through this part of the world from other parts of the world. And So let's keep them in our prayers. Thank you uh, for supporting them. And um, this morning, we're looking at Acts 17, 1 through 10. Uh, we're looking at turning the world upside down, turning the world upside down. And um, last week, uh, we were in the book of Acts in just the, the part of Acts right before this part. And we were looking at Paul and Silas and their group of Christian missionaries as they got to the city. Does anyone remember where they were last week? Anyone? No one remembers? Someone please say where they were last last week in the book of Acts. Oh my gosh, let's pray. Um, they were in Philippi, all right? They were in Philippi. I know it's hard. Actually, even when I preach the sermons, I don't really remember what they're about, like at lunch on Sunday. Um, but you had your Bible open. You could have just looked uh, back and seen that they were in Philippi. But um, so they were in Philippi uh, last week and um, in the passage we studied and we saw that they, there was an earthquake We saw that Lydia came to faith. We saw that there was a slave girl where they cast a demon out. Uh, We saw the jailer was converted because of their great care for him and their integrity that they showed in that situation. And so then what they did is they left Philippi and they traveled along this ancient road called the Via Ignatia, And I'll show you a picture of where this road went. It was an east-west road, a Roman road, if you've heard of Roman roads before, um, from the east to the west uh, that was a well-traveled road during this time. So they would have taken that road from Philippi. The first place that they went to in Europe was Philippi. And now they would have taken that road to this city this morning. We'll see Thessalonica. In fact, just reading verse 1, it says, now... When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, if you're going from Philippi to Thessalonica, the only way you would go would be on this road, the Via Ignatia. It was really thin in some places, like kind like a, 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 of you know, like a cobblestone path. But it was very wide as you got close to large cities. In fact, in 75 BC, the famous writer Cicero complained about the bad traffic on the Via Ignatia. So we have Capitol Boulevard here uh, going to North Raleigh. That's what this is. And so they're going along this road. And as, as in verse 1, these two places are mentioned. You know, I will just tell you from Philippi, if you were driving, Amphipolis is a 45-minute drive. And then from there to Apollonia is a 34-minute drive. And then from there to Thessalonica is a 58-minute drive. In total, it's an hour and 20 minutes driving. The road now, a paved road with tunnels and tolls, it's still called the Via Ignatia. And um, one thing that's really interesting, at least to me, and I think it will be to you too, is so Paul went from Philippi to Thessalonica, right? Okay, so that's where he is now. They're going to be there. In the book of Philippians, I just want to show you this. In the book of Philippians, Paul says this to them I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Because of your partnership in the gospel. And then he says in verse 16 of chapter 4, look at this, look, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help. For my needs, once and again, and so you can even just see it just comes alive. You can just see they went from Philippi to Thessalonica, and they they were helping him and supporting Paul as he went. They were sending him, and so um, we're going to look this morning at their their experience in this city, Thessalonica. This city was founded in three sixteen B.C. by Cassander, and his wife's name was, you know, Thessaloniki. All right. So he named it after her. Um, think about that—a city that was founded in 316 BC. Just think about that. Do you know when Raleigh was founded? In the 1790s. Just think about how much older this city is, and and here they are. And it was a lot. It was old when Paul got there. And so so here they are. They come to this city. You know today, and that's a picture from today. But this is a very dense city. Lonely. Planet calls it the number five top party city in the world. And it's interesting, actually, because there's a place in the New Testament where Paul says in 2 Timothy, Demas, in love with this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. It's fascinating. It's almost like the city has never changed. This is kind of a a hard-coded DNA as a party city. Anyways, at the time when Paul showed up there, this was a city that was a free city, but their freedom was dependent upon good behavior in the Roman Empire and to the emperor. And so that's gonna come up because as we read this passage, and we're just about to, you're gonna see how they get concerned that what Paul's doing would would stir up trouble for them with Caesar because their freedom... That they loved was dependent freedom on the Roman Empire. So let me now just read to you Acts 17, 1 through 10, and then we're gonna jump into turning the world upside down. Look at verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, I don't know how to say that word, uh, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Bow with me uh, briefly to pray. Oh God, we... Uh, we pause and we just speak out loud to you that we have a great need this morning, a great need to hear from you, um, to be challenged and encouraged, Lord, to be fed. And so, God, we we ask that um, our time spent studying this passage this morning would be seed that is sown on the good soil, Lord, may, we, may our hearts be receptive and our minds attentive as we look at the points of this message and as, at the truth in this passage. God, we do lift up this team over in Central Asia, and we pray for them, Lord, even now, that you would go before them as you do in the book of Acts, creating divine appointments, keeping them healthy and safe. And God, just doing your will through them, bringing glory to Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. All right, so turning uh, the world upside down, uh, looking this morning at the Christian who turns the world upside down. So I have three, I guess you could call them attributes of the Christian who turns the world upside down. We're really gonna study the word this morning, okay? We're gonna study this passage and we're gonna get some stuff from it. It may seem like, verse one is just travel notes, you know? Like it might seem like, okay, they're just noting the cities that they passed through. Ah, they went to Thessalonica. Okay, just travel notes. But I think there's a lesson and a principle here that we are intended to learn, to be challenged by, and to emulate. And the first point this morning of the Christian who turns the world upside down. Here it is. Intentional about their place. Intentional about their place. See, here's why. God called Paul to reach Macedonia. We know that. In Acts 16, Paul was just getting a good night's sleep, and he had a vision, and a Macedonian man said, come over and help us. That much is clear. But this calling that that he and his group are fulfilling right now is a part of the larger and bigger calling from God upon every Christian. Paul, for sure, but you and me too. It is a part of that larger calling, right? Amen? To share about Christ with the whole world. You know that's true if you're a Christian. So, So here's the thing. In obedience to the call to reach the Macedonians, Paul went to Thessalonica, not somewhere else. Let me just just let that sit for a second. In obedience to the call to reach Macedonia, which is part of the call to reach the nations, Paul went to Thessalonica, not somewhere else. We do not have a record of a dream or a vision where God said, not just Macedonia, Paul, specifically Thessalonica. We don't have that, no record of that. He chose to go to this city because it was the most influential city in Macedonia. Paul, Silas, Timothy, they were intentional about their place. Because they had a call from God. Do you see that? I mean, I think we need to see that. Again, verse one. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, <laughs> they came to Thessalonica. You see, they just passed through some places. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Dr. Green, a scholar, says the great success of Thessalonica was due in grand part to the union of land and sea, road and port, which facilitated commerce between Macedonia and the entire Roman Empire. No other place in all Macedonia offered the strategic advantages of Thessalonica, a fact not lost on Christian heralds. Intentional about their place. You know that by the year 300, Um, A.D., 50% of urban populations in the Roman Empire were said to be Christian. I mean, we went from 12 disciples to the year 300 A.D., 50% of urban populations were said to be Christian. And here's the thing, 90% of the countryside was still non-Christian. But because Christianity captured the cities, it captured society. And that is always what must be the case. What captivates the cities, captivates the arts, the media, the scholarship, the professions. Let me just show you a picture and I am not being political here. Let me just show you this picture of Pennsylvania from a presidential election, all right? You look at this and you go, well, that's a red state. No, it's not. It was a blue state. But, But the cities had so much influence. The cities have influence and everyone kind of knows this. In fact, you can get off that slide because I just don't want someone to take a picture of it and say, look at what we did in church today. Let's get them. Um, whatever, right? It's not a political statement, but it's just a statement about the importance of cities. Paul would later say when writing to the Thessalonians in chapter one, verse eight of his letter to them, he says this, look at this. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia, in Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere, intentional about place. Protestant Christians are the least urban religious group and thus have the least impact culturally. It's true. It, it's not. And let me and know this, please. It's not about moving into the city. It's, not, it's certainly not about that for everyone. Don't get stuck on this point. Don't be like, oh, well, Matt lives in the city and this is the time in the sermon that we all tune out or he makes us feel like we should. No, and actually I would tell you the reason we do is because of wrestling through some things like this. So, but that's not the point. As followers of Jesus, we must be intentional about our place. So how is God calling you to be intentional about your place as a Christian? Maybe it's going into the place of the office and going to lunch with a coworker who doesn't know Christ instead of the luxuries of being remote all the time. Maybe it is going to your neighborhood, your places, social event, and investing your time in building relationships with people who don't know the Lord. God has called us to be intentional about place. We see this so clearly exemplified in these Christians. Location, 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 right? Place. You think about how simple it is to understand the importance of place. Every kid that's had a lemonade stand understands the importance of place. If you're going to have a lemonade stand, you need to choose a place. You need to choose a place, a neighborhood, where there are going to be a lot of people who will pass by that will pay a high amount of money for a very low-quality lemonade. All right? That is just truth. We would never have a lemonade stand in our neighborhood. But we have had lemonade stands, and we go to the grandparents' neighborhoods, okay? That's how it it has to happen. Trick-or-treating. Not that we would ever endorse or even speak of such things at church. But location matters, right? Place. You're like, yeah, exactly. Watch me. We're going to be very intentional about place for trick-or-treating. We love our kids. All right. Okay. So we get it. We get it then. Place matters. Place matters to God. He put the people of God in the Old Testament in a place, the promised land. Place matters. And the early Christians who turned the world upside down were intentional about their place. And to, to greatly impact our world in our day, I believe we too must be intentional. So I would just challenge you to pray this prayer or to just ask this question, and I'll put it on the screen. God, I am yours. Help me be open to go where you want me to go and do what you want me to do to make the biggest Possible impact toward your calling on my life to share Jesus with the world. Place matters. It does, I'm telling you, it does. It matters in the Bible, not to me, to the Bible. So you can get, you can get place right, but you can still not say anything, right? And that's the next point. The Christian who turns the world upside down is reasonable in their presentation of the Christian faith. Reasonable in their presentation of the Christian faith. So look at verses 2 and 3. We'll start there. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scripture. So he went on three Saturdays, that's Sabbath days. so he's three weeks he's there. It says, do you see it? Reasoned with them from the scriptures. Again, reasonable in their presentation of the Christian faith. Verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So, so there's a lot of key words in, in these verses. None more important than this first one, I would say, which is that they went there and they reasoned with them from the scriptures. You see that? The word reasoned, literally, and you don't need to know Greek to know the Bible. Please don't hear that as I say this, but the word is dialegomai. So you hear the word dialogue in it. A reasoned discussion, an argument, Paul uses this word 10 times when he speaks of himself being in these places called synagogues, seeking to persuade them to put their faith in Christ. And so he's reasoning with them from the scriptures. This is the word used for James and John when it says in the New Testament that they had an argument about who was going to be at the right hand of Jesus, who's going to be first of the disciples. Arguing, reasoning. And then some more key words in verse 3. Explaining literally means to open one's mind, to push and point truth out. Proving literally means to set before someone proof or evidence. He even says, what was he trying to prove? What was it? He says in verse 3, that it was necessary. You see that? for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And and here's a point that I want us to see and why Paul is doing this, because most Jews did not envision their Messiah. Just know that when you see the word Christ, that's the word Messiah. They did not envision their Messiah coming and suffering by crucifixion. That was not their plan. They didn't think that's what the plan was. They thought the Messiah was gonna come and Conquer Rome. And yet, Paul wants to point out to them, using the scriptures, no, it it's actually there. It's in the scriptures. It's always been God's plan that our Messiah, that the Christ, that the king would come and that he would suffer before conquering. He says literally at the end of, Verse 3, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Let me just show you quickly a couple of Old Testament passages, maybe ones that Paul would have referenced, or at least one. Isaiah 53. So you can just see Paul opening this scroll and reasoning with them and saying, listen, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him. The Messiah, guys, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see? Or even what if Paul would have quoted from the Gospel of Luke? Or or just would have maybe referenced what Jesus just said in his earthly ministry as recorded in Luke Luke 9, Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So here's the point. Christians who turn the world upside down are reasonable. Reasonable in their presentation of the Christian faith. What I mean by that is they will reason the truth of the gospel for you, to you, and share it with you. Paul could have. Paul could have talked about the earthquake in Philippi. He could have talked about the exorcism and the power of God that showed up. He could have. He could have shared about his vision that he had in a dream of a Macedonian man. He could have shared about the bright light on the road to Damascus and the risen Christ appearing to him. He could have gone into those synagogues and shared all of that. He could have done that. And he does in other places share his own personal experience because personal experience is very important. Yet here we see that Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. there are solid reasons to believe in God, to believe in the Bible, to believe in Christianity, to believe in Jesus. And as important as personal experiences are, and listen, don't hear me wrong, it's actually very important. You better have a personal experience of the Lord Jesus Christ if you claim to be a Christian. It's important. But as important as it is, Paul did not want the faith of the Thessalonians to be grounded in personal experience, his or their own. He wanted their faith to be grounded in the word of God. And in a real historical Jesus who died for them and who rose from the grave and who will return to judge and to bring his people, his church, home with him. And so the Christian who turns the world upside down, is intentional about their place, is reasonable in their presentation of the Christian faith. An example of that maybe even for us would be to share with someone that the Bible is unique and superior compared to all other ancient documents And its unity In its preservation, in its number of copies of ancient manuscripts, it has satisfied the greatest minds of human history. Or another way you could reason with someone all, everyone agrees that Jesus was a historical person. Most believe and agree he was a great moral teacher, right? However... In the same documents where people go to to say, look at his great moral teaching, this same Jesus calls himself Lord and predicts his own death and resurrection. And so as the author C.S. Lewis famously said, listen, he's either a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord. And so we present the faith, In a reasonable way, we reason with people, the truth, the claims of the gospel. One other thing, just a side note to see here, if you look at verses 4 and 5, which we'll just do right now, look at what he says. This is Luke writing the book of Acts. He says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So, do you see what what's happening here, Paul? Paul, let's keep going. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set in the <laughs> set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them to the crowd. Okay. One thing I think that we should see here is that Luke, remember, remember in the beginning of the book of Acts, Luke is writing this to this guy named Theophilus in Rome. So think about what Luke's doing here. He's, he's actually kind of saying, so Theophilus, here's what happened. Um, all the really reasonable people, like the, the people like you, Theophilus, the leading people of the city, a lot of them, they were like, yeah, I'm gonna join Paul and Silas. And then the jealous Jews and like the wicked rabble people, they started riots. That's what happened, Theophilus. Even Luke, he's being reasonable. He's saying this is the reasonable way, reasonable people consider the claims of Christ. Luke is even saying to Theophilus as we're sort of overhearing it, this is what's going on. Even for Theophilus, this probably was so helpful. Hey, Theophilus, there are Christians like you. There are Christians like you, there are people of high intellect, people who are leaders in the city, people who have influence that that have followed Christ, Theophilus, consider Christ. And so, you know, I could tell you this morning that Jesus has given me so much peace in my heart. He has. He gave me a wife, gave me four daughters, helped me be so great at basketball. I'd be lying on that one. Um, has given me lots of friends, and I could say, you should meet Jesus too. I could do that, and there's a time and place for testimony like that, right? But Listen, and this is the point again. The Christian who turns the world upside down will give a reasonable presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ founded in the word of God and in history that has claims on every person's life. Christian who turns the world upside down, intentional about place, reasonable in presentation. And now third and last, revolutionary in their politics, King Jesus. So the Christians in Thessalonica, as we read this story, it seems clear. They did not talk about Jesus as simply their Savior, but they talked about him as their Lord. Jesus was not just prophet and priest in Thessalonica. He was king. Jesus was not their co-pilot. He wasn't their chaplain. He wasn't their greater Santa. He wasn't their genie, their guru. He was king. He was Lord. That's what they were accused of doing was promoting a new Lord rivaling Caesar of the Roman Empire. Look at verse 6. And when they could not find them they drag Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there's another king, Jesus. You know what I'm saying? their lives their words said Jesus is king and that's the kind of christian that turns the world upside down in verse 8 says the people of the city the authorities were disturbed when they heard these things remember Thessalonica was a free city but it was dependent upon their good behavior in the roman empire and so they were disturbed verse 9 and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went in to the Jewish synagogue. So that brings us to the end of our passage. I think it on this last point, it, it's important that we recognize that when we really live and speak of Jesus as king in our lives, when we live as people that are under the authority of the word of the king, you know, living like this, when when we really live that way, whether in ancient Thessalonica or in Raleigh today, it will be not vanilla, but revolutionary. The Christian who turns the world upside down will be revolutionary in their politics, namely King Jesus. So, as we close, review, intentional about their place, reasonable in their presentation. Revolutionary. King Jesus. One last thing. One last thing. As the band comes forward. One last thing. This guy, Jason, is mentioned four times in five verses. I was really wrestling with that even this morning. I was just thinking, man, what's that about? What's that about? His his name is, is written four times in five verses. Jason, 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 Jason. It's kind of interesting. I was even just driving in this morning thinking, what's up with that? I, I want to meet Jason, like in heaven, I want to meet him. Like, what's going on? Think about what Jason did. He received them, verse seven. In fact, that's the accusation against Jason. He received these men, he received them. What else, what else do we learn about him? Um, his house was attacked. His house was attacked. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 10, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Jason received these missionaries. He he invited them into his home. He was dragged out of his house, it says, when they couldn't find Paul and the missionaries there at his place. He was dragged out of his place. It says uh, in the end of it that he had to pay a fine or post bail. It doesn't really specifically say what it was, but he had to pay as a condition for him to be released. Jason, Jason. Kind of, it's interesting, right? I mean, it almost reminds you of Jesus who paid the price of another's freedom. Jason, 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 Jason. Paul will later say in Romans 16 that him, Timothy, his fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason. He becomes a fellow worker, a partner in the gospel. And so why is Luke mentioning this so much? What he seemed... He seems to want the readers of Acts to know there was a devoted Christian named Jason in the city of Thessalonica. It's almost like he's saying, You can be a Jason. You can be a local. You can be a person of place. You can be a man or woman on the ground, in the crossfire, spiritually. You can be a partner in the gospel and a Christian who turns the world upside down. And so let's pray toward that end this morning as we consider our lives and consider the Lord.